Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. As we've discussed many times on this podcast, humans, other animals, and plants are really just passengers in a world dominated by microbes. They surround us. They're in us. They actually are more us in raw numbers than we are us in terms of our own cells. A problem occurs when microbes evolve to become pathogenic, to cause illness in their hosts. And we've pushed back with antibiotics. But rapid evolution, fast generation times, and clever ways of acquiring genes from the environment gives microbial life an advantage in working around even our best solutions. The development of new antibiotics is glacial. Yet, the threat imposed by microbial pathogens has probably never been greater. Uh, Populations are growing and dense in many areas. Animals are frequently raised in uh, dense environments. Humans uh, were always encroaching on animal populations and their natural pathogen repositories. Um, um, Physicians for a long time over-prescribed antibiotics and people took them without physician guidance. A huge portion of the population uh, feels that their own immune systems are really more sufficient to ward off any threat than even the most newly developed vaccines and therapeutics. So there's a perfect storm brewing, and early detection of a pathogen becomes more critical than ever. So today we're speaking with Dr. Brad Perkins. He's the chief medical officer at Carius, and they have developed a method to rapidly detect dangerous disease-causing pathogens uh, with just a tiny blood sample, and extremely rapidly. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Perkins. Thanks very much. Yeah, so we're still wrestling with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, at least in my head. And uh, I think people are generally suffering from infectious disease fatigue. It really seems to be a reminder that we need to be upping our surveillance in response to infectious disease, not becoming apathetic. So as somebody who's worked at the CDC and other areas involving infectious disease, how much do we need to really be concerned about addressing the next infectious diseases? I think we need to be tremendously concerned. Um, It's uh, surprising to me that um, the response uh, post-COVID has been so tepid um, from a preparedness perspective. Um, We need new tools. We need um, more dedicated uh, and different workforces. Um, and we need a, a much more responsive uh, system to combat um, current and future threats uh, like uh, SARS-CoV-2. And, and that was a virus, but are there other threats when we talk about microbial threats? We're talking about also bacterial and fungal. Are those realistic? Uh, absolutely. Um, I was... Uh, I led the CDC's response to the anthrax attacks following 9-11, which up until that time was one of the largest investigations that CDC had ever done um, and uh, alerted CDC um, to a 
a new expectation for level of preparedness and response to threats, whether they be uh, epidemic, naturally occurring epidemics, um, or um, intentional bioterrorism-related attacks. A lot of what we focus on tends to be antibiotic-resistant microbes. That seems to be the place where most of us at least think this is a biggest potential threat. But how much of it is other threats? And you mentioned you know this idea of uh, bioterrorism, this kind of thing. But what about just bacteria that suddenly evolved to become problematic and pathogenic? Yeah, so uh, antimicrobial resistance um, in bacteria, fungi, viruses, um, even parasites is um, a tremendous uh, threat to the general uh, public health and welfare of, of humanity. Uh, the World Health Organization consistently lists antimicrobial resistance, primarily in bacteria, uh, they're, they're describing, as one of the top 10 threats um, to the public's health. And um, it was substantial activity at a global and at a national level. Um, I don't think we have been um, very successful to date uh, in making progress in controlling um, resistance um, generally, nor in developing new drugs um, that, that provide uh, new, new tools. And you mentioned anthrax and the, and the bioterrorism before, but how much are you concerned about this going forward? That is it really uh, plausible that some sort of infectious agent could be used as a weapon? Absolutely. Um, and um, that's been well demonstrated in the not too distant past where uh, a number of countries, including our own, had active um, biologic warfare uh, programs, um, you know, state controlled, um, but nevertheless, um, programs that specifically developed um, methodologies for using infectious diseases as um, uh, weapons of war um, and, and civil uh, disturbance. So, so um, it's certainly a threat. And from your perspective, with your experience, how much of this, uh, how much of preparedness is really uh, looking for and surveillance for trying to identify something early before it happens versus coming up with new tools in the arsenal to combat it when it does? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up because that's what I spend my days working on at Carius. Um, you know, it's taken us um, three and a half centuries um, of, of work to go from um, the first recognition that there was a microbial world um, uh, using the earliest uh, microscopes 350 years ago. Um, and we've now entered, you know, we've gone from these small bugs under very early microscopes to um, a flood of, of big data um, and progress in genomic sequencing and bioinformatics that, that is revolutionizing our ability to detect infectious agents. Um, and I think uh, will also revolutionize many aspects of, of human health that we may not even really consider 
to be consequences of in, infections um, at this point. Um, so we are we are really on the precipice of 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 radical change as a result of progress in in technology uh, with this microbial world that surrounds us. Yeah, I think I think you can see the method to my madness here in, in setting this up. That in understanding what carious can do. Uh, we really uh, have to think about, you know, how how prevalent is the problem? And the thing that I always think about, we talk about drug discovery on this podcast all the time, but drug discovery towards cancer and drug discovery towards different illnesses that occur inside humans and animals, plants, whatever. How are microbes different? Is it really just because they evolve so quickly that drug discovery can't possibly keep up with them? Well, the fundamental uh, response to that question is they had a two billion year head start on all of the rest of life. And um, so their mechanisms of evolving and adapting um, to their environments, and I say that with a capital E in the broadest sense, are far beyond um, most other life forms. And they make the microbial world um, a formidable um, uh, opponent um, in the infectious disease realm. Um, the maybe the more interesting thing is that because they had a two billion uh, year head start on on the rest of life, um, everything that we recognize as living today uh, evolved um, in the presence. The ubiquitous presence of these microbial life forms, so much so that that we as humans um, are as much uh, bacteria and other microbe as we are human. Um, you know, um, sort of posing a really interesting philosophic question about um, you know our 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 basic makeup and. You know, to date, it's really been hard to to um, describe that human ecosystem, which is composed of human cellular components and microbial cellular components, and, and basically even numbers. Um, you know, in the 30s of trillions in terms of numbers, um, more. Uh, cells than than the number of stars in the universe. If you can imagine that complexity, we we now have the tools on the microbial side, and and certainly if you look at some of the work on on human cell atlases, we're increasingly having the tools to begin to think about the complex interactions between the microbial world and and. Um, human and other life forms that, that we've never had before. And, and that's why I say infectious diseases are really important. Um, we're going to save a lot of lives with the technology um, that we've developed to carry us. Um, but uh, this, um, this, this trajectory of, of hyperintelligence and, and more rapid knowledge of communication uh, accumulation is going to be quite dynamic going forward. I think that the 
general public does kind of understand that there are trends in this particular area because we talk a lot about antibiotic resistance and maybe we're changing the way we use antibiotics or the way in which our physicians prescribe them. But what are the major trends? We maybe think of staph aureus and, you know, we hear about this when we go to a hospital or we know that SARS-CoV-2 is the third pandemic since 2000, right? So, so what are the current trends in terms of the development of new potential threats that are just naturally occurring? Microbes are, as they always have, um, evolving and adapting faster than, than uh, humans. Um, and um, they're doing uh, that in a, in a larger dynamic system than humans alone. So there's a concept in antimicrobial uh, resistance, preparedness, and, and, and efforts called One Health. And the reason that that concept is so important in antimicrobial resistance is that it's not just a human problem. It's a, it's a human animal, um, agricultural uh, environmental problem because the, these microbes, in particular the bacteria that are the biggest threats uh, for antimicrobial resistance, don't draw sharp boundaries between uh, animals and, and humans and um, you know, their lives in environmental settings um, in terms of their ability to adapt and acquire resistance mechanisms. So, you know, the, the, the U.S. program, one of their clear goals is to operate in a larger framework than, than just humans in healthcare alone, because that's going to be the only way that we, that we um, sort of make progress in combating the spread of these, wrecking, these resistance mechanisms in bacteria, fungal, and, and other pathogens. And, and this has become something that's actually on the radar of the federal government. And at the end of September, the White House announced they'd be investing something like $100 million towards the discovery of new antibiotics, maybe uh, new detection methods. Uh, can you tell me more about this initiative and how that breaks down? Yeah, we're, we're very excited about that. And, and this is certainly a problem that warrants um, the attention of, of the president and, and senior political leaders. Um, there was $100 million invested uh, through uh, a new part of the National Institutes for Health um, called ARPA-H. It stands for Advanced Research Project Agency, um, hyphen H for health. It's, it's modeled along um, the successful similar programs in the defense um, uh, realm uh, known as DARPA. Um, and, and the idea of that investment that's been recently made by, by um, the current administration is to uh, seek high-risk, high-reward solutions to antimicrobial resistance. And I expect those, to, those investments to occur in a variety of areas, um, including new diagnostics, um, new surveillance methodologies, um, new approaches to development of, of antimicrobial agents, um, just to name a few. This is really exciting because such initiatives seem desperately needed. But how much do you think this, the public from the way in which 
uh, the response to uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, that there's such skepticism about, you know, an, an infectious agent can really be harmful where people say, I just got natural immunity. I'll be just fine. How much of this needs to also involve a very heavy handed component of public communication and how to convince the public that these threats are indeed real? Yeah, I, I uh, wish I could give you a great answer to that. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very concerned about the, um, the kinds of, um, the kinds of uh, stories and positions people are, are, are taking around these, these areas that are, that are um, life-threatening um, at the community and family and individual level. Um, you know, at Carius, we're, we're, particular fo- we're particularly focused on immunocompromised uh, patients. And, and um, the reason for that is, is because with the Carius technology, which is completely revolutionary for diagnosis of infections, um, we want to apply those tools in, in people that are at highest risk um, um, for serious infections and can most benefit from a technology like Carius. And, and these are people that are, as a result of our progress, are actually um, increasingly common um, in healthcare settings. Um, and those are people with cancer, particularly those with hematologic malignancies, um, as well as uh, persons undergoing solid organ transplants. But rheumatology patients, there's a whole number of, of reasons that people um, have uh, compromised immune systems that put them at particular risk, not only of more frequent, frequent and more serious infections, but infections caused by unexpected pathogens. And this is what Carius does exceptionally well, is you know, we are a non-invasive routine blood test um, where we can simultaneously and rapidly identify more than a thousand different bacterial, viral, parasitic, and fungal pathogens. So we're very focused on, on these immunocompromised patients. These infections that they get um, not only are, are life-threatening in, um, in themselves, but they also prevent these, 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 these individuals and, of course, their suffering families from accessing treatment for their underlying diseases, um, the reasons that they are immunocompromised. So it's sort of a double, a double hit. Now, I will say that in these populations, um, there is a desire to um, um, seek treatment for infectious diseases. They realize the fragility of their health. I think there's a lot of people that, that um, um, you know, uh, are are being misled um, by leaders and social media that they're not susceptible to these infectious uh, threats uh, and that it is some sort of a conspiracy. Uh, I will assure you that it is not and and that um, these are real threats that we need to take seriously for seriously and and we need to invest um, and communicate 
Um, so we protect uh, everybody um, in the United States and globally. No, very good. It seems like we have a problem and a potential solution, but then now we have to marry those two through some sort of communication strategy. And, and we're, we're speaking with Dr. Brad Perkins. He's a chief medical officer at Carius. This is Calabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking to Dr. Brad Perkins. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Carius. And we're here on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, talking about the emerging diseases and potential pathogens and how these pose a significant threat. And when we were on the other side of the break, we discussed the problem and some potential ideas as to how to solve them. But really, what Carius does is a special technology, and you've alluded to this a little bit, but let's talk about the idea of how important it is to detect an unusual or potentially threatening pathogen early. So how important is that, especially in a bloodborne pathogen? Yeah, it's, it's critical. So um, the faster that, that we are able to get people on the right treatments for these infections, um, the better they do. And that plays out in all sorts of dimensions. Most importantly, um, their, their risk of, of mortality, um, uh, especially. Um, but the, the technology in this area has just exploded. Um, and Carius works with a particular analyte um, known as cell, cell-free, uh, microbial cell-free DNA. Um, and this builds on work that has been done on um, non-invasive pregnancy testing, um, where, where pioneers realized that they could actually, just using a routine blood test, they could access and test the, the DNA of the fetus in the mom's circulatory system. And, you know, based on that, those observations, there has been a, a progressive, um, progressive use of um, cell-free DNA to look for cancer cells or cancer ind indicators in the blood, um, to look um, in people that have received solid organ transplants to look at the health of those transplants by using the recipient's blood to check in on the health of the, of the, the donor organ. And in our case, uh, we have uh, since 2014 um, developed um, the world leading technology to isolate and sequence microbial cell-free DNA um, um, and when we get those sequence um, uh, data, uh, we usually get about 20 million um, uh, different fragments of, of microbial cell-free DNA. 
uh, and we sequenced those fragments and were able to align those to a database, including the representative genomes for more than a thousand different organisms and actually match those. And we can do all of this process in about 24 hours. And compared to what's usually done um, and the iterative process that's required to test all kinds of different, um, uh, for, to test for all kinds of different infectious diseases um, and the time it takes to grow cultures and perform invasive specimens to get samples from different places in the bodies, we just uh, perform remarkably better than the status quo. Uh, can you tell me more about the status quo? Like, how was this normally done if you're not using your technology? Yeah, well, so um, current uh, microbiology depends primarily on blood cultures. And the problem is um, many of the pathogens we're most concerned about don't grow at all in blood cultures. And, and, and in many cases, if they grow, they grow too slowly to be recognized in a time frame that's clinically relevant. Um, we also have serology. So we, we recognize that, that people respond to infections and, and develop antibodies. We can detect, we can test those antibodies to, to see if, if, um, if they've developed a response to a particular infection. And that's great, um, but again, um, that takes so long that it's usually not clinically relevant. Um, the, the one sort of sneak of progress that, that has occurred, and we saw this with, with COVID, of course, is there are now some PCR tests where we go in and look for little tiny pieces of specific DNA in, in, in microbial pathogens. And if, we're, if we've got the right probe, and the right infection, um, we can, we can uh, make a diagnosis. But again, that's an iterative process. What we do at Carius, it doesn't make any difference what the infection is caused by. We go in and sequence all of the uh, microbial cell-free DNA. Um, and, and based on those sequences, we identify whichever of the more than a thousand pathogens we can detect um, uh, using a single methodology that is fast, sensitive, and does not require invasive testing. So let's talk about the technical aspects of this because you mentioned you know the pregnancy test which we did last year to find my daughter that she was uh, actually a female you know they 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 can do cell free testing to detect the Y chromosome in, in the mother's blood uh, it, there's uh, colon tests colon cancer tests that we've uh, described on the podcast that sound very similar to that too but when you look at a at a blood sample for instance that you were looking for, for the carious method, it would seem like the vast, vast, vast majority of stuff in that sample must be not microbial, must be from the host and, and maybe from other, you know, I don't know, maybe mostly host DNA. So how does it exclude all of the noise to be able to pick the needle in the haystack, or in this case, thousands of needles in the haystack out of that background? Um, that's a great question, and, and that's really the special sauce of, of Carius. There's two critically important domains. 
One is preparing these plasma specimens so that the background human DNA signals are suppressed and the microbial um, uh, cell-free DNA signals are, are um, enhanced. So that is uh, challenging. The other challenge, of course, is that um, there is incredible environmental contamination um, of, of all the reagents we use in these molecular assays, of um, the, the transport chain to move specimens around. And so in addition to making sure that the signal in the, in the plasma specimen is robust, um, we also have to um, take a number of precautions that the DNA signals that we're identifying are not the result of environmental contamination, but are actually something that, that is happening within, within the person that we're testing. Um, and so it's, those are two of sort of two of the key components and why, why there's not very many competitors in the space right now is those two things are, are technically challenging. Yeah, it really blows me away to think about this because I would guess that even if you had a raging infection, and this is just me spitballing as, as a guy with a microphone and a background in biology, it would seem that if you took a, a milliliter of blood, that even if you had an infection, that, that maybe you could find some of the pathogen that's there, evidence of, of one specific discrete pathogen. How rare are these targets that are coming from microbial infectious disease? Yeah, they're... They're um, importantly, um, the concentrations that we work with to detect microbial cell-free DNA are about five orders of magnitude less than the signals associated with um, um, non-invasive pregnancy testing or fetal cell-free DNA. Um, so, um, you know, the great thing is that we have been successful in developing those methods that allow us to sufficiently suppress the background human signal um, and sufficiently enhance the microbial signal um, to um, um, routinely um, um, detect uh, with great sensitivity um, the cause of serious infections in these critically ill immunocompromised patients. And can you touch on the technology a touch more? Is there a PCR amplification step and then just essentially short read sequencing, or is there something a little more elegant to it? Yeah, it's actually more elegant. There's not a PCR sequencing um, uh, step. Um, and um, we are doing what's called metagenomic sequencing. So we, we prepare the specimen to enhance the microbial um, uh, cell-free uh, DNA signal, and then we sequence everything that's in that sample. And we are able to distinguish microbial from human um, when, we, when we get those data, um, and then subject that to a, a really intensive and sort of first-class bioinformatic pipeline that, that includes a number of, of machine learning and, and AI tools um, not only in the matching of, of these, these diverse fragments, but, but also in the construction of the reference um, genomes um, that we use to identify uh, these microbial agents. 
Yeah, I think I'm starting to see this now, just in terms of how I would do this if if I was following your lead here. The problem with PCR, obviously, is that if it's a target that's not that is novel, you won't identify it by using PCR because the primers may not match or whatever. Uh, is it really just a question of using some sort of conserved microbial sequence, like you know uh, ribosomal repeats or something like that, that you that you can really identify a specific uh, microbial, something that's a microbial signal, bacterial or say fungal signal, and then use like intergenic spacers or other surrounding sequence that is a little more of a signature of a discrete pathogen, something like that? Yeah, we, we use everything that's available. And um, that's, that's a huge uh, leap of progress beyond PCR where, where you have to pick and choose your targets. Um, so um, there again, that's, that's some of the magic in the bioinformatic pipeline is um, we're going to have a different assortment of fragments for every, um, every example, even if it's the same organism, we'll have a different, it's an E. coli that we detect. Um, we can do that with a, uh, a whole variety of different, um, uh, uh, a whole variety of different fragment assortments. And that's not something that PCR can do. The, the, I will tell you that we, we do uh, leverage um, some of those tools and some amplification uh, steps. We've just added the detection of antimicrobial resistance to our test. Um, and we now um, identify um, seven different antimicrobial resistance markers that are associated with four different classes of antimicrobial resistance across 18 uh, different um, bacterial threats. And these are, these are the biggest offenders among bacteria for, for, um, for antimicrobial resistance. So we're now able to detect that using our test as well. Um, so anytime we detect one of those 18 uh, pathogens with our metagenomic sequence, we then apply um, um, uh, a multiplex PCR process, again, using these very specialized fragments uh, collectively um, uh, in the same sample that we've, we've used to identify these bacteria, um, we, we use PCR to amplify um, those regions that specifically code for these genetic resistance mechanisms. And we think this is going to be a major contributor um, um, to um, the field. There's nothing like this in the world. And, and because of the dependency of, of recognition of antimicrobial resistance on culture, and because of the poor performance of culture generally, um, we, we expect to make a major contribution to uh, recognition and response to antimicrobial resistance. I see. Because at first blush, I would have guessed that the assay would have just said, okay, here's a bunch of DNA that looks like Staph aureus. But you're saying that you actually have uh, the capacity to identify different resistant forms of Staph aureus DNA. We actually um, uh, launched um, Staph aureus res resistance testing uh, last year. Um, and we just launched the rest of these uh, detection mechanisms for these 
these 17 different organisms, actually very recently, uh, last month, um, using, using a couple of different methodologies. And we expect to be able to extend those um, further, some of these methodologies, uh, taking advantage of the fact that we can we can we we see enough of the DNA of these organisms in the circulatory system to extensively molecularly subtype these organisms and detect resistance in ways that are quite unique. And how common is it to identify, uh, uh, like, say, an, an antimicrobial, let's say, a resistant pathogen that's present but in a healthy person? is irrelevant because the person is able to, you know, suppress it or keep the numbers down where it doesn't really balloon into an infection. Are there cases where you identify these things really as a potential warning that, okay, it's present and, you know, we got to keep an eye on it long before there's any symptoms of infection? In some cases, yes. Um, particularly with, with severely ill uh, patients, we see we can detect infections before they're clinically apparent. Um, but one of the interesting things about microbial cell-free DNA is it has a very short half-life. So unless these organisms are actively replicating uh, in the body, um, these signals are, are uh, not present. And um, we take full advantage of that. So the whole thing is based upon a, a simple blood draw. So you, so the idea is you just do a blood draw and then send this off to a company and the next day you have an answer? Yes. So um, the 24 hours is the turnaround time uh, in our laboratory once the specimen um, uh, gets to us. Um, so we had to have to add the time of transit as well. Our, our current turnaround time is about 63 hours um, from, from uh, the time that the specimen leaves the, the, the hospital or health system um, gets to Carius, and we return a report to that physician. Um, that is um, um, remarkably faster than what is done for usual diagnostic care in, in most infectious diseases. So, so uh, that's a big improvement on the status quo. Well, this is all really exciting. If listeners want to follow your company or um, either online or social media, uh, where would they look? Yeah, at cariusdx.com uh, would be great. All right. So, Dr. Brad Perkins, thank you very much for joining me today. This is really exciting technology, and I look forward to hearing more in the future. Thanks very much. And as always, thank you for listening to another episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Now, do me a big favor this week. Find an episode in the series, maybe this one, and share it through your social media networks. Or even better yet, write a review on iTunes or the place where you consume podcast media, or, or do both. After eight and a half years of covering the newest breakthroughs in biotech and doing it every week, I'm really hoping to dial it up a notch rather than just rest on a successful record. And it happened again this week. It just kills me <laughs> when somebody says, I love the podcast. I can't believe I've never heard it before. And I've got a lot of catching up to do. So it happens all the time. And it's really surprising that uh, in this day and age that, well, there's a lot of podcast choices and, and people are really just discovering podcast media still. So do your part in helping us out to, or helping us out, helping me out. It's, I always say us, like it's like a team, like everybody else has. It's just me and, 
<laughs> uh, doing the website and doing the production and pretty much everything here. So uh, help me out since I don't have a team and let's connect people with trustworthy media through your social media networks. I mean, if you like it, chances are that people who are close to you will like it too. So thank you very much for thinking of that. Uh, so this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.